The Lord has blessed us with exceptionally talented sopranos, soloists. And, of course, one of the great highlights over the years has been Debbie DeBose. And she left our church to go with her husband for his first pastorate in Jacksonville a few years ago. And they snuck back into our congregation recently. And I said to Debbie, don't you ever do that again. If I would have known you were coming, we would have made sure that you would have to sing for your supper. And so we knew she was coming tonight. And so we've just been blessed by that uh, wonderful solo. Thank you wherever you went. Uh, oh, there she is, Debbie. Did I see Diane Bickle out there tonight? Let me see. Yes. Do I remember duets from the Page School, Diane? Do you remember that, Debbie? Here's the deal. The next time, okay, you get a hold of Diane, and we want to have a recapture the glory of that. Is that okay with you, Diane? Thank you very much. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> well, tonight we're going to continue with our study of the epistle to the Romans. You recall that last week I focused merely on two verses, really a verse and a half, as I've tried to retard the rapidity with which we are racing through this epistle. I think John Piper just finished his uh, uh, lecture series on Romans that took him either six or eight years, I forget which. <clears throat> And also, I want to alert you that we're rapidly coming to the end of chapter 11. And that's significant because in the beginning of chapter 1, Paul introduces himself as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. And he introduces the concept of the gospel in the first chapter and spends 11 chapters unfolding the depths and the riches of the gospel of God, including justification by faith, including our sanctification by the assistance of the Holy Ghost, including the teaching on adoption, and then beginning in chapter 8 through 9 and 10 and 11, he's dealing with the difficult doctrine of election and predestination. And at the end of chapter 11, we find a, a very significant transition because chapter 12 shifts the focus from the theological uh, content of the epistle to its practical application. And so I'm going to make this take as long as possible to finish chapter 11 because when it comes time to be practical, I'm at a complete loss. That's and so this evening, I'm going to see how much of this I can cover, but I'm going to begin at uh, verse 27, really 26b, the quotation from the psalm in Isaiah, and read through verse 36. Now, I don't know, I'm sorry, through verse 35. I will not read verse 36, and let me tell you why. I'm saving verse 36 for next week because that deserves a full treatment. And I also want to give you a heads up about the last verse 
of Romans 11. A few months ago, Ligonier Ministry had its annual <coughs> clergy conference, and one of our guest lecturers at that conference was Steve Lawson, a Baptist minister from Mobile, Alabama, and he is an outstanding expositor of the Word of God. And his first message at that seminar was on the last verse of Romans 11. And I mention it to you for this reason. It was beyond a doubt the finest treatment of that verse I'd have ever heard in my lifetime. And I say that by way of heads up because even though the tapes from that conference have not yet been finally edited and are not yet available in their final form, the text of that message is available on the internet. You can download it to your content. And those of you who want to be diligent students of Romans, I strongly uh, recommend to you that you check out with Ligonier and see how you can get an opportunity to hear that message on the last verse of Romans 11 by Steve Lawson. <clears throat> because I guarantee you that when I deal with it next week, I won't begin to be able to unpack the depth and riches of the content of that last verse the way Steve did in his message, and it was really extraordinary. So we'll leave that for the next time, and tonight we'll begin reading at verse 26b, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and I will ask the congregation to rise for the reading of the Word of God. Also, remember that I say we'll deal with that last verse next week. That presupposes that I get that far tonight, and we know that's not a, a certainty by any means. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you that they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. Again, dear friends, this is the word of Almighty God, breathed out by His Spirit, given to us for our instruction, for our edification, for our correction and reproof and training in righteousness. Please be seated. Let us pray.
Again, our Father and our God, when we look into the magnificent, magnificent depth of these things that you have been unfolding through your apostle, we are immediately stricken by the height of these things and how unqualified we are to grasp them in their fullness. But insofar as we are able, O oh God, stoop to our weakness and give to us an understanding of these marvelous things. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week I focused on the brief statement that Blindness, in part, had happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. Tonight we pick it up as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is a compilation of more than one Old Testament text here. But the summary that is provided by the apostle gets to the heart of the matter that he has been uh, teaching to the people at Rome. If you recall earlier on in our study, I mentioned the question that I hear all the time about Martin Luther because in his latter years he wrote some very blistering criticisms against the Jews in Germany of his day basically motivated by two considerations. One, because of their hostility towards the gospel that Luther was laboring so hard to uh, proclaim in his homeland. And secondly, because of the bankers who were imposing burdensome and oppressive uh, usurious interest payments on the peasants of Germany, which provoked Luther's wrath. And some have seen the seeds of Hitler's uh, anti-Semitism in that background of Luther. And so when people come to me and say, you're always saying nice things about Martin Luther, what about his miserable treatment of the Jews in his uh, blistering critiques in his later years? And I say, well, it's hard to defend Luther for those things, but I then send them to earlier writings to Luther where Luther says no Christian ever has the spiritual right to despise the Jews because not only was Jesus a Jew, but salvation is of the Jews. And we must never forget that as Paul has labored. We're the wild, we're the wild branch grafted on to the root of the tree. We have no intrinsic claim to the promises of God to his people in the Old Testament. Because the deliverer, that is the Messiah, the one who will redeem, comes not from the Gentile lands, he comes out of Zion. And one of the things that the Messiah will accomplish is this, he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That's part of the Old Testament prophecy. To turn away ungodliness from Jacob means from Israel. Israel had fallen into apostasy. Israel has fallen into unspeakable sin against the Messiah himself. And yet, part of the redemptive work of the Messiah 
will be to provide the framework for this final redemption of Israel that we discussed last Sunday evening. Now notice the reason that is given in verse 27 for why the deliverer will turn away ungodliness from Judah. Judah has rejected the covenant. covenant. Judah has, uh, uh, Jacob has said no to God's yes in his promises of redemption. They have turned away into consistent disobedience and God is going to turn them back. Why? Because he owes them a second chance? Not at all. Because of his covenant. Because of his promise. Because of his electing grace. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So now Paul begins to explain this to them. <clears throat> Concerning the gospel, they, that is, the Jews, are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, <coughs> that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Now you notice that when Paul began this whole study or treatment of the plight of the Jews in chapter 8 and 9, he examined this question in light of the broader question of divine election. And when he talks about the final restoration of Israel after the age of the Gentiles that we looked at last week, he puts that in the context not only of the covenant promises, but also in the context of the doctrine of election. Now, two things I want us to catch at this point. The one reason that we can be absolutely certain that God is not finished with the Jews and that God, after the fullness of the Gentiles, be completed, as Paul mentioned in our treatment last week, that then he's going to turn his attention once more to his kinsmen according to the flesh, Israel, we know that that is true and that it will happen because God has predicted that it would happen. And whatever God says will happen in the future must necessarily come to pass. Now, <clears throat> the next question is this, how does God know? what will happen eventually with the Jews? How does God know what's going to happen tomorrow to you or to me or to anyone else? How can God ever, through His prophets or through His Son, predict future events? You know, the open theist movement, which is uh, penetrating the Christian world today with all of its ungodliness, says that God does not know and cannot know 
the future choices of human beings. So that God's future knowledge is limited by human free will, and even God's knowledge has a finite limit. He is not really omniscient, and he certainly lacks the foreknowledge of human choices in the future. Okay, they say that, they deny the orthodox and biblical doctrine of God, we understand that, but the question now is, from our perspective, how does God know what's going to happen? How does he know what people will choose tomorrow? It's not as if, I mean, this is the way the common idea is, that God has some kind of mysterious, psychic sense, some ESPN, thank you, (laughs) about the future, whereby he somehow can peer down through the corridor of time and see what no one can see from our vantage point. That's not how it works. The reason why God knows what's going to happen tomorrow before it happens is because he has ordained it. His knowledge of future things is based upon his ordination of future things. When God ordains that the people of Israel be restored in the last hour, He knows that that will happen because it is his sovereign will that it should happen and that it will happen according to his sovereign election. That's why this doctrine of election is so vitally important to Paul in the midst of his struggle about the future of his people. He knows, A, that the future of his people is in the hands of God. Not in the hands of the Pharisees that we looked at this morning, but it's in the hands of God. And God has the power and the authority and the will to turn these people away from their disobedience. Just as he has turned you away from your disobedience. Had God waited in his heaven for you to turn from your sins and come to the cross he would still be waiting. But God, in His sovereign mercy and grace, does not wait for the sinner to turn or incline Himself, but God brings us away from our disobedience to respond to Him. Concerning the Gospels, they are enemies for your sake. That is now, but concerning the election, They're beloved for the sake of the fathers. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is the story of the lame son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth. You remember that when Saul and Jonathan were killed and the messenger came to David with the news, David rent his garments because of his great love for Jonathan, And then he asked the question, is there anyone left alive from the house of Saul? And everybody out there who had any kinship with Saul 
fled for their lives because people assumed that what David wanted to do was to get rid of all of the relatives of Saul so that there could never be another uprising against his monarchy. And there was this lame son who had been dropped by his nursemaid when he was a baby and became lame in both feet. His name was Mephibosheth. And he was whisked away into hiding. And almost like a story akin to Cinderella, David sent all of his soldiers out into the countryside on a search mission to see if there were any survivors of that household. And they discovered Mephibosheth and brought him back to David. And Mephibosheth was terrified, absolutely sure that he would be executed. And what did David do? He brought him into his house and to his table and treated him as a son. And he honored Mephibosheth not because of any peculiar affection that David had for Mephibosheth, but he did it for the sake of the love that he had for Jonathan. That story illustrates the history of redemption. The only reason that you and I are included in the kingdom of God is out of respect for God's love for his son. Our election, our adoption is always in Christ Jesus. And now Paul says, from God's perspective, because of the election, because of the fathers, because of Abraham, because of Isaac, because of Jacob, and the promises that God made to them as the patriarchs of Israel in their seed, because of their, God's affection for them, he was going to visit his mercy upon the seed of Abraham through the line of Isaac. That's the theme that's been going through this epistle. And so he says, concerning the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Now, dear friends, that verse 29 is one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture for us as we struggle with our sin. Now, I know it's politically incorrect today to use any terminology that might somehow reflect negatively on Native Americans. We've seen what's happened with football teams that have as their uh, mascots or as their team names any reference to Redskins or Braves or any reference to the American Indian, that they have to peep their efforts now to get those teams to change their names so that no one may be slighted in the Native American heritage. But I'm going to risk that right now. When I was a kid, we had an expression that you've all heard of. And the name of the expression was this, Indian giver. You ever heard that? An Indian giver was somebody who would give a gift 
and then at the first opportunity, take it back. And we would say, Indian giver, but don't ask me what the origins of that were. I don't have any idea in American history. But we certainly got the connotation growing up that it was not a good thing to be an Indian giver, to give something away and then take it back. Well, the point that Paul is making here plainly is that God is not an Indian giver. When the Lord God gives a gift, that gift is irrevocable. When the Lord God exercises His redeeming calling on a person, it's final. He never takes it back. And the supreme gift that you have been given is the gift of grace, the gift of the mercy by which you have been called and brought into the kingdom and fellowship of Christ, adopted into His household, and God will never, under any circumstances, revoke that. Even your disobedience, which may displease Him, which may provoke Him to corrective wrath, will not cause Him to take that gift away. And in like manner, He said, God made promises to His people, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. He gave gifts to these people. He gave a calling to these people, and those gifts and that calling, those things were without revocation. The sovereign election of God is always and ever final, no matter what. He reminds us again, you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience. Paul's labored this point, hasn't he? Even these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown to you, they may also obtain mercy. God gave gifts to the nation of Israel. They became disobedient, and through their disobedience, our mercy was received. And now through our mercy... God is going to work again to bring forth His mercy on those who were once disobedient. And going back up to <clears throat> verse 26b, He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. He will say no to their sin and overcome it for the sake of His redemptive plan. <clears throat> Even so, these also have now been disobedient that through the mercy shown you they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience that He might have mercy on all. Go back now to Romans 2, Romans 3. You don't have to go look. I'm just in your mind. Go back there where Paul brings both the Jew and the Gentile together before the judgment seat of God saying that both the Jew and the Greek are guilty of sin that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that all express the same disobedience. And now, he says, God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy to them all. To the Jew first, 
and then to the Greek. Now let me get to the next portion. How does Paul respond to these things? Throughout this epistle, as we've seen on countless occasions, Paul asks the reader rhetorical questions. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? What shall we say about this? What shall we say about that? And then he gives his answer. Now he does not follow this extraordinary affirmation with a new rhetorical question. Instead, he responds with a sigh, with a holy groan, the first word of which is the word, oh. I mean, when you read this carefully, the text is almost palpable. You can read beyond the lines that the apostle have read, and you can see how bare are his emotions as he pens these words that mean so much to him out of his profound concern for his kinsmen according to the flesh, Israel. And now when he sets forth the promise of God for a final restoration of his people, his soul groans in passion. Oh! And what follows from the oh? is doxology. Remember I said earlier to you that my professor in Holland on one occasion in the classroom said, gentlemen, all sound theology begins and ends with doxology. It's the fear of the Lord, the reverence for God, the heartfelt sense of worship that is the beginning of wisdom. I've also told you that lesson one in systematic theology deals with the incomprehensibility of God, that sense in which God, in His fullness of His essence, of His glory, far so far transcends the human ability to sound its depths that we are left in a state of awe before Him. It's not that we're into a mystery religion where the things of God are unintelligible. What God reveals to us, we can grasp to a certain degree, but the axiom that was so central to the teaching of John Calvin was the axiom, finitum non capax infinitum. The finite cannot contain or grasp the fullness of the infinite. Even in heaven, when we're no longer looking through the glass darkly, when we're there basking in the refulgent glory of God, the unveiled majesty of Him in His presence, even then, dear friends, we will not have an exhaustive knowledge of the Creator. Eternity is not long enough for the creature to come to a comprehensive knowledge of God. Because even in eternity, we will be creatures, and as creatures, finite, and still be 
subject to Calvin's axiom, finitum non carpox infinitum. Never in this world or the next will the finite be able fully to contain or to grasp the infinite. And so as we stand in wonder and awe before what God has revealed of himself to us in his word, we are moved to doxology. As the apostle writes, oh, he says, the depth, the depth, the depth is so deep, we cannot plumb it. If you've ever been into deeper parts of water in the center of the ocean, away from the shallow water when you can use a glass-bottomed boat and skim across the surface and look down and see all the marvelous uh, uh, variant colored fish that are there. But go into the depths and the water becomes murky, inky. There are fish that survive at the bottom of the ocean where the sunlight never, ever penetrates. We can't see them. Our vision into the murky depths is limited to the shallows. And now Paul is contemplating not the shallow water of God, but the infinite depths of his being. And that's why he groans, oh, the depth of the riches. We could speak at a human level of the depths of the degradation, the depths of the corruption, the depths of our poverty that no one can grasp. And in contrast, now the apostle is speaking of the riches of the glory of God. I was reading a little devotion from Charles Spurgeon this past week in which Spurgeon was talking about the imagery that is so often used in the Bible about how our faith is like fine jewels and, and, and silver and gold but the gold, in order to reach its purity, has to be refined by the fire. And so God puts us through the crucible, through the flames and the fire of persecution, in order that the gold may be purified. And he talked about the fire that purifies gold. And then he said, in contrast, you can throw garbage into the fire as long as you want, and the garbage will never be refined. You see, in our souls, there is garbage, but in God, only riches. Who can reach the depths 
of the riches, the riches of his wisdom and his knowledge. How wise is God? How much knowledge he has. We are impressed by people who have advanced degrees and yet the most brilliant mind of the creature in this world is a mind that is filled with enormous gaps in their knowledge where the mind of the brightest human being has more ignorance than it can possibly have of knowledge. But in the mind of God, there is no ignorance. In the mind of God, there is no folly. Nothing but wisdom. Nothing but knowledge. You know, I'm always, I'm taken aback, sometimes almost offended, even a little bit amused when people ask me the question that I've been asked a thousand times. Does prayer change God's mind? And I try to act patient with that question because I know that the person who asked the question hasn't really thought about it because really that's one of those questions that to ask it is to answer it. It shouldn't take five minutes of musing on that question to know that nothing could be more absurd than to think that our prayers would change the mind of God. Beloved, our prayers change things. Our prayers change us. But if God's mind is determined to do something, what would ever possibly move him to change his mind as a result of communion with us? Could I give him knowledge that he didn't have before I pray? God, I know you intend to do this thing over here, but I don't think you've considered fully the consequences. Let me try to show you what will happen if you do that. And then God says, oh, thank you very much for your instruction. I didn't know that those consequences were there. No human prayer has ever added a subatomic particle of knowledge to the mind of an infinite God. But consider something even worse, where we think that we will change God's mind because God's intentions are somehow either foolish or even worse, evil, until we give Him the benefit of our counsel. There is no folly in the mind of God. God does not need my prayer to gain more knowledge. He does not need my prayer to gain more wisdom. What happens in my prayer is that God gains more affection and more reverence from me as I bow before him. Remember, I always say the first law of prayer. Remember to 
whom you are speaking. And then secondly, remember who you are. So that when you come with your prayers to God, you come saying, oh, the depths and the riches of His wisdom, of His knowledge. How unsearchable are His judgments. They're unsearchable by us. One of the things I love about the teaching of the Apostle to the Corinthians is that he tells us of the Spirit who searches all things of God. And that's easily misunderstood because some people think, oh, well, even the Spirit is searching, groping in the darkness of of the Father, trying to figure out what the Father is up to. No, when Paul speaks of the Spirit searching the things of God, the Spirit is not searching for His information. He is putting a searchlight on the things of God to illumine them for our understanding. To us, these things of God are unsearchable. But thanks be to God that the Spirit searches them for us. That's why we pray whenever we come to the text that God will condescend to our weakness, that He will give us the assistance of the Holy Ghost to make these things intelligible to us. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. And now the quotation again from the Old Testament from Isaiah and Jeremiah and Job. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Has anybody ever questioned your motives of things? Of course they have. I know why you did that. You did that for X, Y, or Z. When people say to me, I know why you did such and such, I say, you couldn't possibly know why I did what I did or why I do what I do, unless I tell you. And even then, you may not know it because I may not be telling you the truth, and also, I may not be telling myself the truth because I don't always know why I do what I do. Are you always in perfect touch with your motives? See, the one thing I can never do is to get inside the secret chambers of your heart or the privacy of your mental thoughts. So how can I know your motive? I might say you might have three or four possible motives, but I don't know why you do what you do. And this is one of the things about our sinfulness. When people injure us, we impute to them the worst of all possible motives. And when we hurt them, we impute to ourselves the best of all possible motives. We tend to save the judgments of charity for ourselves. We need to be instructed. Now, we not only can't plumb the depths of another human being's mind, that's beyond our ability, but that isn't worthy to be compared 
to our inability to know the mind of the Lord. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But that which he has revealed belongs to us and to our seed forever. The only way we know the mind of the Lord is when the Lord is pleased to reveal it. And when he does, we can know for sure that what he reveals about his mind is not deceitful or not inaccurate. That's why I love this book. This book reveals the mind of God to us. Who has become his Do you know why God doesn't have any counselor? Because he doesn't need any counselor. What would we counsel him about? What I said a few moments ago about our prayers. We don't go to God to give him our advice. We go to God to hear our, his advice for us. Now, I, I'm always mystified by the spirit that is breathed out by skeptical biblical scholars, the higher critics in the church, and so on, that are always lashing out against the scriptures. And one of the things that I just can't get past is in my own formal education, my field uh, and discipline of study initially was philosophy. And at the heart of the study of philosophy, of epistemology, metaphysics, and all of that thing, is an emphasis on learning the tools of critical analysis. Learning not to jump to conclusions. Learning the difference between a legitimate inference that can be drawn from a proposition and those log illogical leaps that cannot be drawn legitimately. And so, we, to study this, we would have to read passages from Kant, from Plato, from Aristotle, from Mill, where they made logical errors. And in our classes, we were forced to parse these statements and find the logical errors, critique them. And we were taught how to read literature with a comb, not just accepting anything that we find on a, in print. And that's a habit in my life. When I read the newspaper, when I read a book, when I read a manuscript, an essay, that critical apparatus is always there. I'm not talking about a negative spirit, but a spirit of analysis. It's there always. Except when I come to the text of Scripture. When I come to the Scripture, I realize <laughs> that it's the Scripture that's criticizing me. I'm not criticizing it. And my only analysis there is to examine what it says and then examine my own heart for my nonconformity to it because you can't improve on God. 
We're not qualified to be his counselor. But who has first given to him so that it shall be repaid to him? We need to understand that. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. And when God gives you a gift, it's not because he's paying you back for what you gave to him. <laughs> what can you give to him that he doesn't already have? We struggle in this world about giving, finding gifts for the man who has everything or the woman who has everything. What can you give to God that he doesn't already own? No, that's the marvel of his grace. That's the marvel of election. He's not repaying a debt. But the gift of his grace is given freely from the abundance of his mercy and of his love. It's doxology where Paul is praising the glory of God which by God's grace brings us to the last verse of this chapter, which by his further grace we will look at next week. And I do hope that some of you will take me up on my suggestion and get a hold of that message by Steve Lawson. Let's pray. Our souls also cry, God, oh, the depths. Oh, the riches. Oh, how your ways pass finding out. How marvelous, how high, how holy. And yet, how sweet when you give us even a glimpse of that thesaurus of sweetness of who you are.